we want to begin with a few um, comments. Um, I'm Ami Glazer. I'm a professor of economics here, and I uh, knew Julie for over 30 years. Um, it turns out this is the best room on campus to have this memorial for Julie, because over there is a painting by Julie, which Carolyn and Duncan Luce had donated uh, some years ago. And it was here before today. This was really here. Um, we'll have five, five speakers and an opportunity for some additional reminiscences. Um, we'll do three speakers, then a break, and then two more. Uh, let me give you the first three speakers. Um, our first one is David Brownstone, and he has served as chair of the Department of Economics, a department which Julie effectively founded. Following him will be Bill Parker, who's chair of the Department of Physics and had served, among other things, as vice chancellor for research and president of University Hills. Third speaker to begin with will be Laura Mitchell, who's acting director of the Center for Global Peace and Conflict Studies, of which Julie was one of the main founders. David. First of all, thank you, and it, it's, it's really an honor to be asked to speak here. Uh, I, I'm going to start by talking a little bit about uh, Julie's contributions to, to economics. To begin with, he graduated from the City University of New York in 1941. Uh, that's actually going to be important later on. And then he went on to get his PhD at Harvard in 1949. Uh, after that, he taught at the University of Chicago, Stanford, Berkeley, University of Pennsylvania, where there he headed the Fells Institute of Government, which was a very well-funded research group. His last academic appointment was here at UCI, beginning in 1976. Along the way, he was involved with the National Bureau of Economic Research, the sort of premier economic research group still in the United States, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, RAND Corporation. He was also a consultant to, among other things, the National Park Service and the Kennedy Administration. So, very distinguished career. So I then went to look at Julie's Vita, listed on our website, and it had been put up there by him a long time ago. His Vita lists two articles and three edited books. And I said, wait a minute, I'm currently serving on the Committee on Academic Personnel. This doesn't sound right. I mean, I know things have gotten harder, but <laughs> not that hard. So I spent... Um, being on the Committee on Academic Personnel, we learned how to do these things quickly. I did some computer searching and discovered, in fact, there are at least 25 other articles that he published, almost all of them in the very top journals, American Economic Review, Journal of Political Economy, so on and so forth. So one of the questions about Julie is, why would anybody take off all these top publications on, on his veto? We'll most likely, I think, he edited these things off because he had felt that academic economics had become too narrowly focused, in particular too narrowly focused uh, to effectively address key societal problems. All of Julie's published work is on the general area of government provisions of goods and services, particularly public goods, in that area now called public economics. Uh, he was actually an innovator in, and a leader in applying economic analysis to key issues in urban and public economics. So, for example, his work on the economics of the California Water Project, one of the biggest public works in the century, last century, uh, was 
on required reading lists for graduate industrial organization in Berkeley in the 1970s. I know, because I was there. I had to read it. Uh, more interestingly, his works were also on required reading lists in the political science department at Harvard. I know, because my wife, Carol Ulotter, actually still, she still kept the notes <laughs> and showed me. The fact that she kept them is no surprise. The fact that she could find them is really impressive. <laughs> uh, but I think that the main thing about Julie was not so much his own individual work, but his work in bringing together other people, particularly other younger economists, so that they can interact, get funding for their work, and among other things. So Marty McGuire commented, and something was published on the GPAC site, actually, recounted, and Marty was one of the participants of these meetings, that Julie got funding from uh, NSF, University of Pennsylvania, all sorts of things, organized a series of, of meetings uh, on public economics. And these meetings include such figures as Richard Musgrave, Sherman Rosen, Joseph Stieglitz, Manager Olson, Charles Tibu, James Buchanan, Finus Wells, Eugene Smolinski, Charles Schultz, Henry Aaron. I'm sure you recognize some of those names. Some of them have won Nobel Prizes. Uh, at the time, Julie was somewhat senior to most of those people, and apparently was those invitations were very coveted. So back to the, the story here, uh, one of the questions that, that I had while trying to prepare this talk is first trying to figure out why Julie took all these publications off his Vita. And then the next question is, why would someone like Julie come to UCI in 1976? Okay. Things were not going all that well at UC in those days. That was the days of the first Brown administration, <laughs> which followed, not, remember, came right after the Reagan years, which weren't so great either. Uh, and so I think one of the reasons, I, mean, I don't know, because I had never discussed this with Julie, but I think one of the reasons that he must have saw the potential to build something here that would contribute to uh, the greater good. I think also he valued the idea of public research universities. Remember, he went to the City University of New York at a time when that was really, uh, uh, the, if you look at where the graduates of SUNY CUNY went to in those days, it was really impressive. If you were poor and you were in New York, you could chances of you getting to Ivy League, this is well before they had you know, financial need-based need -based admissions policies or anything like that. The only place for those people to go if they wanted to go to college was, was CUNY. It provided a rigorous education, and if you look at where those people went, uh, it was very impressive. So I think the only other institution uh, of that ilk, really, at the time, was UC Berkeley, which was one of the places he went. So, one of the key, so I think that he valued that. He saw in UCI the chance to build something better and new. I think one key asset he bought was his knowledge of how UC works. And he used that knowledge repeatedly to help build UCI, UC in general, and particular economics here. So as soon as he came here in 1976, he set about building a world-class economics group. He recognized, for example, there was money in transportation research. Uh, just about that time, Irvine's branch of the Institute of Transportation Studies was put together. Pete Building was heading it. He got together with Pete and got money to from ITS to help recruit Jack Johnston here. 
This is something I didn't know. Jack Johnston apparently did some work in transportation. <laughs> Jack Johnston, for those of you who don't know, was probably one of the world's leading econometricians at the time, and getting him here was a real coup and really put UCI economics on the map. He then went ahead further, recruited some top promising young economists, including Ami Glazer, <laughs> Kevin Lang, who's unfortunately not here anymore, uh, further building on Irvine's strength in transportation, he recruited Ken Small, who was then a starting associate professor from Princeton. Uh, he also played a key role in recruiting Art Devaney, who was a senior I.O. and uh, transportation economist, and also David Lillian, who at the time was a beginning associate professor in econometrics and labor from UCSD. And so these senior people and young senior people formed the core group of the first Department of Economics, of which Jack Johnston was the inaugural chair. Julie retired in 1988, okay? but that, that doesn't mean that he walked away from us. He certainly did not hesitate to step in when he thought that adult supervision was needed. <laughs> I, I can remember a number of uh, department meetings or recruiting in tenure where uh, he stepped in, sometimes loudly, <laughs> Um, after I was tenured, Julie pushed me to get involved in the Academic Senate. He was, as Bill will say, will point out in his talk, heavily involved in the Academic Senate. And his example of what could be accomplished there made uh, his pushing hard to resist. I got bogged down in a fight with the UCI administration over graduate student housing, uh, seriously bogged down. So I went to Julie to, to get some moral support. And he said, this is not an exact quote, but it's pretty close. He says, you know you're doing a good job when the EBC is yelling at you. And when the <laughs> chancellor joins in, you know you're doing a really good job. <laughs> and on that particular issue, I had both the chancellor and the EBC yelling at me. In fact, both together once at the same time. Now, I'm pleased to say in the end, I won that battle. Uh, we now allocate graduate student housing in a much more rational fashion. I should give a lot of credit to Bill, who was on the administrative side of that battle, probably still remembers it. Um, finally, uh, Julie and Jack Johnson played a key role in obtaining the Heinz Chair, the funding for the Heinz Chair in the Economics of Peace and Conflict, and even throughout his retirement, continued to support Irvine's Institute of Transportation Studies, GPACs, of course, and also IMBS, and, and particularly as, as funding ebbs and flows, Having someone with Julie's knowledge of the people and the institutions of UC was, I think, really critical in keeping these things going. Uh, when I finally became chair in 2005, which at, at, at the time Julie, of course, stepped in to push me <laughs> to accept it, um, I only saw him occasionally at concerts and public lectures, but the, the second or third thing out of his mouth was always interrogating me about how things were going in economics and UCI in general. Uh, he was always blunt very direct and usually right. <laughs> I'm Bill Parker, and uh, I think I'm in here for a couple of reasons. One, I served in the administration and was on the receiving end of uh, uh, Julie's tact and, uh, thoughtful, restrained comments. Uh, as, and as a consequence, I do have some sense of what he contributed to the University of California, and in particular, uh, working on University Hills, where he was always uh, behind me with a sharp knife, uh, and making sure we did the right thing. 
So I'm going to comment not about his academic or his School of Social Science activities, where he was obviously an outstanding faculty member and an institution builder, but he was also dedicated to the University of California as an institution and to the Academic Senate as an expression of the will and the voice of uh, the faculty. Uh, he would occasionally remind me that the University of California is as good as it is because of the quality of the faculty and the involvement of the faculty in the governance uh, of the university. And he was always outspoken on ensuring that the faculty were that the faculty voice uh, was heard. Uh, somewhere back in the late seventies, early eighties, he became uh, involved in the faculty welfare activities at the system-wide level. And many of the benefits that we enjoy—health benefits, uh, vision, uh, dental benefits—you can attribute to uh, his uh, careful. Uh, skilled negotiating uh, uh, behavior. Uh, what he really did is people gave in to him after <laughs> being constantly uh, uh, bombarded with his uh, blunt, cynical, uh, uh, brusque uh, statement of and correct and visionary uh, concerns. His service at UCI involved University Hills, where I, benef I was uh, the point person at UCI in the development of University Hills, and I was relatively naive about the operation of the system-wide administration. It was Julie who uh, told me they were all bastards and incompetent. <laughs> and if you began with that assumption, you could make some progress. <laughs> uh, to be truthful, he was more than that. He was insightful about the motivations and the behavior of senior administrators. He understood how universities make decisions, who the critical decision makers were, and to what um, ideas, pressures, arguments they might be uh, responsive. So behind the scenes, his insight and understanding of the personalities of the university administrators was extremely important to me as I was that naive young uh, uh, individual who tried to deal with the senior administration up in, uh, at that time up in Berkeley. One of the ways that the campus recognized his contributions in this role of service was to award him the uh, Daniel G. Aldridge Distinguished University Service Award in 1991. <coughs> And that was the first time the Academic Senate made that award. Uh, so Julie was selected as the first recipient as the example of university service. And I think that's an important thing for all of us to remember that as faculty, and I wish there were more young faculty in this audience to uh, listen to us talk about Julie, because, as I said, he was not only a great academic, he was committed to the institution, to the role of the Senate in the governance of the university, and devoted considerable energy, effort, and style uh, to making sure that the faculty voice was heard. Uh, perhaps 
today more than any time in the last half century, we need faculty like uh, Jules. And I'll say Jules because e his emails to me always were signed Jules. I don't know what that means. <laughs> he never signed an email to me with Julie. Uh, he, although in private conversation, things were fine. <laughs> uh, we need faculty like Jules to step forward today more so than any time in the last half century to help find solutions to the most challenging problems this institution has faced in the last half century. Challenges to its uh, governance structure, challenges to its excellence. We need voices like Jules to uh, nag us to continue to focus on excellence to continue to focus on the quality and the involvement of the faculty, and always to have a vision of what the institution should be in the long run. And that has to come from the faculty, and I think Jules was a perfect example of that. Jules was uh, simultaneously a great advocate and effective in advocating for faculty welfare. And having been an administrator uh, for a while, uh, I can also tell you there's a real pain in the ass. <laughs> uh, I'm currently the chair of the university-wide committee on faculty welfare. And if you go back in the minutes, you still find references after almost 30, 40 years to the contributions he made in bringing benefits uh, to the campus. I think the only final thought I have about Julie is the the relationship we had, and I think it's probably best described in that cliche of the, the good cop, bad cop. Uh, Julie would go in first <laughs> and uh, beat up on the administrators, make outrageous demands, which were always the correct action, but he would state it in a irascible, aggressive, cynical way, and then I would come in uh, and those of you who know me is I can also be, in a mild way, uh, something like Julie. But in comparison to Jules, <laughs> I was the mild uh, individual who would compromise and negotiate the final solutions. So my style uh, was to send someone like Jules in first and then follow it up with a rational, reasonable debate. And between the two of us, we built University Hills. <laughs> I'm Laura Mitchell. I am currently the director at the Center for Global Peace and Conflict Studies, which uh, Julie helped to found. I became affiliated with that center shortly after coming to UCI, and this is my first chance to talk to a group as its director. I'm also a member of the history department here, so I think it's fitting that as a historian, it's my role here tonight to look back on the founding of the Center for Global Peace and Conflict Studies and think about Julius's role in it. UC Irvine is a young campus. It's remarkable for its degree of growth and the change that it's experienced, particularly in just the last 30 years. And in that growth, I think it's notable that we've managed to maintain a communal spirit, even as the physical plant, the population, and the number of nationally visible programs on campus continues to increase. This sense of community is exemplified by the life and legacy of Julius Margolis. Those who never met Professor Margolis in person nevertheless benefit from the vision, tenacity, and the humanity that he brought to UCI. Julius Margolis casts a long and beneficent shadow here. The metaphor of an intellectual umbrella isn't quite right,
because that implies a shading or a protective barrier when, in fact, Julie's particular legacy is about letting in light and breaking down barriers. He was a creative, productive, and tireless advocate for programs and the intellectual life here on campus. During the early 1980s, he saw clearly the need to build a broad-gauged, multidisciplinary effort to address the dangers arising from the fearful and thoughtless militarism of that era. UCI at the time wasn't much focused on international studies, and certainly not on the specifics of peace and war. But Julius was instrumental in forming a coalition that changed that status quo. He saw the role of economics, which was his own area of expertise, in shaping international issues, but he realized that the challenge was broader than just his own field. So he put together and inspired an improbable, impressive band of scholars and early UCI stalwarts to form the Center for Global Peace and Conflict Studies. Among those were Riley Newman, who's here today, from physics, John Whiteley in the School of Social Ecology, who works on moral reasoning, Frank Long from chemistry, Larry Howard from psychology, Cal McLaughlin from biochemistry, Carl Huffbauer in the history of science, Keith Nelson, who's also here in um, international history, um, Ronald Schinzinger from electri sorry, electrical engineering and computer science, Fred Raines from physics, and Sherry Rowland from chemistry, those last two <coughs> Nobel Prize winners. So Julie really had a knack of picking people who were going to stick with it and accomplish what he wanted to see done. Assembling faculty and student enthusiasm, sustaining funding, and the material infrastructure to create a research center is no small feat. Gathering together leading scholars from six of UCI's then eight schools illustrates the breadth of Julius's vision for the Center for Global Peace and Conflict Studies. He remained interested and engaged in the center's work for the rest of his life. With generous donations from community leaders, this effort also established three endowed chairs dedicated to the study of peace. The Tierney Chair in Global Peace and Conflict Studies, its current holder, Pat Morgan, is here. The Warmington Chair in Social Ecology of Peace and International Cooperations, currently held by Scott Bolins, and the Heinz Chair in the Economics of Peace. These high-profile chairs the center's programs overall and the presence of a critical mass of engaged faculty have been important in fostering a broad range of graduate student projects at UCI in the last 30 years. Now, for a center that was founded at the height of the Cold War, we might have anticipated long-term support for research in political science, but perhaps not the current center of gravity supporting anthropology students or topics that are located ge geographically in Africa, in Central America, and in Asia. The logic, or perhaps the illogic, of superpower politics that prevailed in the 80s is no longer at the heart of peace research, but CGPACs in the way that it was founded remains poised to support cutting-edge work wherever it takes faculty and graduate students from this campus. Jewell's most identifiable legacy at UCI is, of course, the annual Margolis Lecture, which brings to UCI and to Southern California well-known figures who have contributed knowledge and activism to peace and conflict studies. While many of the lectures continue to focus particularly on arms controls issues, speakers in the last decade have also addressed other pressing issues of the day, such as nuclear nonproliferation, terrorism, food policy, and humanitarian interventions. Recent speakers have come from Sweden, Pakistan, India, and Sudan, as well as, of course, the United States, and they've included leading scholars as well as diplomats and other practitioners. 
from Hans Blix, speaking fresh from nuclear inspections in Iraq, to the U.S. Ambassador Jack Matlock, reflecting back on Cold War tensions with the Soviet Union, the Margolis lectures continue to engage students and the wider public. Tonight, we're here to reflect on a lifetime's professional accomplishments, a research center devoted to better understanding the global dimensions of our present world and imagining a more peaceful, sustainable future, a lecture series to enhance our campus conversations with diverse voices, and, as we've just heard, a residential community for faculty, improving the quality of life so that we might better live, think, and work together. Many of the faculty and most of the graduate students who now interact through CGPACs did not have the pleasure to interact with Julius Margolis personally. And from all that I hear about Jules as a person, I think this is a loss to us. But we're all cognizant of the debt that we owe to his memory, and we're grateful for his pioneering efforts that enable us to continue that conversation. Professor Margolis did not set the CGPACs research agenda for the 2010s nor did he envision the Tuscan reproductions of Phase 9 housing. Better than that, he worked to establish a platform on which others, those of us who are actively engaged now, could respond to the needs of the day. And for that, personally, I'm truly grateful. Thank you. Um, we now have a few minutes for uh, people who have comments to celebrate Julie. We also, there's a video recorder, so after the program is all over, people are welcome to make comments, and I believe there's also a book um, in which people can write down their, their memories. Um, so anyone wish to speak? We have a few minutes. Christy. Um, we can turn it off if you want. Um, thank you. I'm Christy Monroe. I'm in the political science department, and I uh, direct the Ethics Center. And it's nice to see so many people here, some of the old Irvine when I first came. I met Julie first, um, and it was Julie, uh, at a conference that he had in honor. I think it was either Ken Arrow or Tony Downs, or maybe both. I'm not sure. He was very kind to young scholars. He encouraged them, and he treated everybody equally, which I think was very nice. His humanity was very obvious in the way he dealt with people, and we've talked about that a little bit. Um, when I had my um, second little boy, I was a little concerned about how I was going to balance a career and, and having two children, and Julie actually was the one person I talked with more about that, because he was thinking of retiring himself at that point. I think it was 86, he retired, I think 88, and I remember he kept saying, there's a great sculptor in me that wants to get out, so um, we went off to uh, to Princeton for three years, and when I came back, one of the first people I wanted to call was Doris, and that was when I met Jules. I called. Um, she was not home. Julie answered the phone. I said, is um, Doris there? He said, no, she's up at Berkeley, and I said, oh, that's nice. How are you doing? And he proceeded to tell me he was having a miserable time, and I said, oh, I'm really sorry. What's the problem? It's my giant erection, he said. <laughs> I was not quite... Sure, how to handle that? I, think I uh, stammered something like, uh, "Has Doris been gone a long time, Julie?" <laughs> he says, "No, it's my painting. I'm a painter now." And I said, "Ah!" So he explained to me about his paintings, and then they, when they lived near us on Whitman Court, I would drop by often. And I have to confess, most of the paintings were most god awful things I'd ever seen, <laughs> but some of them were really quite wonderful, and I'm glad that uh, people have enjoyed them. But I think what's important about it is that Julie um, 
Julie really took full advantage of what, what life had to offer. He was not just a, a narrow academic. He certainly was not a narrow academic, but he was much more than even a broad academic. He was, um, I think Churchill said about Roosevelt, that meeting Roosevelt was like your first glass of champagne, and I think there was a little bit of that with Julie. He was kind of went to your head. You're not quite sure what was going on, but it basically felt pretty good. And I think he was, um, he had the gift of, of um, living his life, not just inhabiting it. And I think he encouraged other people to do that. And I think that was a great gift that he gave uh, to scholars and also to other uh, people in his life who became friends. And I'm very fortunate to have become one of them. Thank you. David. I'm David Lilliam. Uh, as David said, Julie hired me many years ago. It would be better if you came here because people behind you won't talk. I just didn't want people to forget that Julie was a very well-rounded person, a Renaissance person. We've heard about his paintings, but he took a lot of pride in his table tennis, too. <laughs> and being senior champion was a very important important thing for him. So so I just wanted to remind you all about that. And then just one other thing. Um, my dad became a neighbor of Julian Doris in the uh, residential uh, place there at now. And you know what Bill was talking about you know, dealing with administration. He did not like the food at this place. He made it well known. And, you know, I can see him leading revolutions up until the last few months. Um, so uh, just know that Julie stayed Julie his entire life. Bernie. Well, I have a very special um, debt to Julie, since Julie was the person who uh, offered me my first real job. I, I don't count my time as a soda jerk, actually, in the <laughs> drugstore as a real job. That was when he was at Penn. And in some ways, if you think about his, his academic career as a, as a research scholar. It's a career that is always going to be linked to someone who was his student. That's Anthony Downs. Uh, Anthony Downs is one of the leading scholars of the past uh, century. But Julie's connection to Downs is more than just thesis advisor. Uh, Julie's connection is a kind of great chain of being because Julie was the student of Schumpeter and Downs was the student of Julie, and Julie introduced Downs to the works of Schumpeter, and thus continued a kind of legacy, a multi-generational legacy, that's very, very important in academia. And I think of myself uh, as, in part, at least, the student of Downs, and there's a whole generation, in fact, multiple generations of scholars who owe that to Julie. But it's also unfair to talk about Julie only as the mentor of Downs. I, I went and did some, not as, not as detailed a, a lit search as, uh, as Dave Brownstone did, but I did, sort of did, I did find this really quite marvelous um, quote uh, from Paul Samuelson, uh, also a, sort of a name to conjure with. 
And this is a quote actually from the Review of Economics and Statistics from 1958. So even at that point, you will see in a moment, uh, Julie had already done really, really uh, important work. Uh, and uh, Margolis, uh, sorry, uh, Samuelson says, I'd like to think aloud about the difficulties with public expenditure theory. On these subjects, Richard Musgrave, who again was the leading uh, finance theorist of his, of his time, and Julius Margolis have done outstanding research, and I must confess my obligation to them for much friendly counsel. So Julie was, is not um, chopped liver uh, to be a scholar uh, at uh, Berkeley uh, and Penn and Harvard uh, and to have the Paul Samuelsons of the world uh, talk about valuing uh, your counsel, especially when even at that point uh, Julie was not that old um, um, a scholar. When I think about um, Julie, the word that comes to my mind is curmudgeon. <laughs> and I actually had never really looked up the definition of curmudgeon. And so I just want to share with you a, a kind of very short essay by a guy named John Vinokur, who says, whose, the title of which is, What is a curmudgeon anyway? And it's essentially, when we think about curmudgeons, you usually think about people who have a kind of, oh, they're kind of nasty, actually, or they can be kind of unkind and cruel, or at least brutal in their candor. But what um, Vinegar says, and I happen to agree, and I think it's an apt description of Julie, is um, they're reputation for malevolence is undeserved. They are neither warped nor evil. They don't hate mankind. They just hate mankind's absurdity. They're sensitive and soft-hearted, but they hide their vulnerability between a crust of misanthropy. They ease the pain by turning hurt into humor. They attack maudlinism because it devalues genuine sentiment. Perhaps curmudgeons have gotten a bad rap in the same way that the messenger is blamed for the message. They have the temerity to comment on the human condition without apology. They not only refuse to applaud mediocrity, they howl it down <laughs> with morose glee. Their versions of the truth unsettle us, even though they soften it with humor, and we hold it against them, even though we ought not to. So that's my memory of, of Julie Curmudgeon and marvelous, marvelous scholar and marvelous human being. I want to say one last thing on a more personal note. Uh, Doris Margolis um, is, is not with us. Doris is in the building. Uh, this is like, not quite like Elvis. Uh, <laughs> but um, she was feeling pretty much under the weather, um, having gone to, really not, would have gone to two memorial services, the first for Larry Howard, uh, at which her daughter Jane made, a very, made some very moving comments about the ties between Larry uh, and, uh, and Julie. I had the pleasure of talking to Julie not at the hospital uh, not too long before his death, uh, at which point he was very proud of the fact that he, in fact, had just walked around the entire hospital building. Uh, and so for me, at least, it's impossible for me to see Julie as dead. Um, Julie was very much 
a larger-than-life figure. And moreover, as I think probably both Mark and Jane will comment, uh, and it's probably more appropriate that I say this without Doris being here, um, Julie was a man who was determined to live as long as his wife was alive, because that theirs was and is a remarkable, remarkable love. Thank you. Our um, uh, next two speakers are Mark Peterson, uh, Julie's son-in-law and a professor of UCLA. And the last speaker will be Jane Margolis from UCLA, an author of several important books on education and, most importantly, Julie's daughter. Well, first of all, everyone, thank you for being here. Uh, as you might imagine from everything that you've just heard, and I know that all of you have experienced uh, with Jules, that you might have a pretty good sense of what it's like to be a son-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> or a teenage daughter. Or a teenage daughter. <laughs> and uh, I, I, there, are several, there are some things I was going to say already well said, and I won't, I won't repeat, but I do want to say uh, a few things. One is to clear up this, this name business. They're really worth as in the history of human development, there really are three eras of Julius Margolis. There's Julius. He was born a bright, young Jewish kid in Brooklyn and went on to City University and on to great things. Uh, then, of course, he became Julie, the economist, the one you know so well. And then there's Jules. And he made a very distinctive break in 1988 when he retired from UCI and from economics, although not really, uh, to become the artist and to become Jules, the artist. Now, when I met him, it was very early in the Jules era. <laughs> and I have to say, I knew it was from Jane that he was an economist, but he was hardly out of central casting. <laughs> Jules, I met, had a French beret, a beat-up army jacket, paint spattered on his shoes, and a thick album of photographs of his artwork that he would... Uh, graciously share at the slightest hint that you might have any interest whatsoever <laughs> in seeing, uh, seeing that. He also, um, I, I used to work in the theater, and anyone who works in the theater knows that duct tape is one of the most important inventions in the history of civilization, and Julie was certainly, Jules was certainly uh, very much of that sort. Anyone who saw his car saw the duct tape held up the bumper, and the furniture was held together by duct tape. His shoes were held together by duct tape. Just about anything that was material and broken could be fixed by duct tape. Uh, I do want to say something about the academic side, because uh, we've had this remarkable intersection of our lives that you don't anticipate when you meet someone to... Uh, yeah, Harry, but uh, my first faculty appointment was at Harvard University in the government department. Uh, many of you may know the government department not now, but for decades, along with economics, was in the old Lit Tower Center of Public Administration. And uh, that's where, of course, Jules was a graduate student in the late 40s. I, a few weeks ago, I came across a photograph in the old collections uh, in the family a picture of Jules, I don't know the exact date, but it must have been around 48, 49, uh, sitting on the steps of Lit Tower Center reading the newspaper. And you can imagine how that hit me, because I walked that spot 40 years later, routinely, going to camp class and 
going to meetings and so on. And I was just there a few uh, weeks ago on a site visit and made a point of standing in that spot again. And what's uh, almost uh, mystical about it is uh, it was in that building, in my office, that I met Jane. Sorry. And I, I realized this as I was thinking about this. I'm almost tempted to ask, did Jules have something to do with that? <laughs> <laughs> or did that, uh, that sense of romance that Jane felt about me really capture some atmospheric electrons and the ions that Jules had left in the building and somehow we had some kind of connection? Uh, I do have to uh, tell you a, a story I think uh, Bernie in particular will appreciate. When I was at Harvard, I joined Harvard in 1985, and a few years after that, uh, the department recruited a number of people, including Jim Malt, in particular Ken Shepsley, uh, and Mo Fiorina was already. These are names of people who were very much uh, involved in what is known in the uh, profession of discipline of political science as rational choice. Tony Downs' book, Economic Theory of Democracy, was in a sense a foundation of that. Well, of course, I knew nothing about Jules Margolis at this point. And uh, in the late 80s, particularly at Harvard, because student, graduate students in particular had come to Harvard to work with the, the grand traditionalists, the James Q. Wilsons of the world, and Richard Neustadt's, and, and uh, uh, Hugh Hecklow, and, and uh, 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 Sam Beer, and Stanley Hoffman, and Samuel Huntington. These are all people who did not use fancy models. They didn't use econometrics. They didn't use a lot of data. They were from the grand big thinkers and empiricists in a different sort of way. And when people like Ken Shepsley started showing up, and by the way, the graduate students were so ignorant about where the field had actually gone, they thought that I fit into that building as a Michigan-trained student, so I did quantitative work, and quantitative modeling, rational choice, all the same thing. It actually created a lot of tension in the departments. And there were, great, there were many hallway conversations, late-night debates, lots of... of uh, hemming and hawing by the students, a great deal of concern about the future of the Harvard government department as a result of all this. And I was very much wrapped up in those uh, debates as well. And uh, this, we had a visiting committee come, and uh, they got an earful about this whole issue uh, from the graduate students in particular. So when we had the closing dinner at the visiting committee at the president's house, this was the subject of primary discussion about the future department and the effects of this entree of rational choice theory, and poor Ken Shepsley was kind of the <laughs> pinned against the back of his chair, taking on the brunt of this, uh, of this challenge. Well, then I met Jane, and I discovered, uh, I introduced, we had a departmental party, introduced Jane to uh, Ken Shepsley, and a little while later, another encounter, they made the connection, oh, Jane Margolis, Margolis, uh, and, and Jane said, yeah, my, my father is uh, Julius Margolis, and Ken said something like, Oh, Julie Margolis is like a god to me. And I thought, what the hell? <laughs> How does Ken... And it turned out that uh, not only had um, Jules been an advisor to Tony Downs and created that uh, uh, trajectory for uh, Tony and the work that would become, I think it's the most cited book in social sciences, uh, but uh, he also got money from Social Science Research Council to do a series of workshops, and he tapped on the shoulder a bunch of young people in political science to bring them along and develop the paradigm of, as, as Jules in his uh, uh, different generation mode, now, it wasn't a rational actor model, it was a rational man model of, 
of uh, utility maximizing individuals that you could think of in politics. And it turns out Ken Shepsley and a whole bunch of other people who were paragons in the field now uh, uh, really were developed in many ways because of Jules as economist. And here I was a political scientist uh, confronting my father-in-law's legacy in a very stark and interesting way. Uh, I, I, my work has expanded in some ways through a lot of uh, national advisory committees and programs with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and of course had a lot of multidisciplinary intersections. And in the process, I keep running into people uh, who seem to have known Jules or had been recruited by Jules or were tried to be recruited uh, by Jules. For instance, uh, Mark Pauly, who's probably the preeminent health economist of his generation. Uh, Jules tried to recruit to UCI. In fact, I, had, I was at a dinner with Mark uh, two days before Jules died. And we talked about uh, that recruitment effort, and Mark wondered what it would have been like to, uh, to have come here. That's, it's all part of a story of I, I sort of developed a personal power game of when I would meet anyone who had any, any slightest association with the social sciences, I'd say, gee, I wonder if you know my father-in-law, Julius Margolis. <laughs> and very often the answer was, oh, yes. Uh, if, if this was kind of the uh, where's, where isn't Waldo game, uh, because he seemed to be, be everywhere and all over the place. Just a few months ago, few, not many weeks ago, actually, Jane and I had dinner with Bobby Wolf, who's an economist at Wisconsin, former director of the Fault Institute, and her husband, Bob Haverman. And uh, Julie and Bob edited Public Expenditures and Policy Analysis, one of the preeminent uh, books in the field. And so Bob was able to tell us how that particular association happened when he was working on the staff of the Joint Tax Committee in Congress on leave uh, from Grinnell University. So, you know, again, there's just constant uh, sense of running into um, uh, people of this sort. And, of course, um, he played an enormous role not only in development of policy analysis and cost-benefit analysis, he also played a big role in uh, public policy education, modern public policy education. Ford Foundation tapped him and various other people, I think, in the early 60s to say, we need a change. We need a shift from public administration programs to modern, sophisticated, analytical public policy programs. And as I was mentioned, he went on to direct the Fellows Institute, where he brought that, that kind of experience. Uh, there was a, co a friend of mine, colleague of mine, who at the time, some years ago now, was vice president for research and evaluation at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, now president of the New York Health Foundation, Jim Nickman. And uh, somehow it came up about Fells, and uh, I found out that Jim had gotten his degree at the Fells Institute. So I said, naturally, so Jim, perhaps you know my father-in-law, Julius Spargolis. And he had a certain mistiness in his eyes and said, do I know your father-in-law? said, I was coming out of an undergraduate education that was mostly dominated by the anti-Vietnam War movement, which Jane will appreciate. Uh, and uh, it was a kind of spotty academic record. And I applied to Fells, and I got in because Jules let me in. Mm -hmm. he, he looked past that uh, record, and he let me into the program. And of course, uh, the rest was history. And, and Jim has remained very interested in what's been happening with Jules and his, his art and various other things. Uh, as luck would have it, uh, Jules also spoke into my ear once I came to UCLA 13 and a half years ago and said, you know, shared governance, academic senate. And I've been involved in some of those things at UCLA, but um, as Bill Parker knows, I'm on the healthcare task force for the academic senate, UC Academic Senate's Faculty Welfare Committee. And, uh, and Bill's on it, as are other people who knew uh, Jules very well. 
And uh, our, our last meeting had to be a virtual meeting, so we couldn't all manage to get to Oakland at the same time. Uh, but at the end of that, the chair, uh, Robert May, someone many of you probably know from uh, his time at UCI, uh, wanted to spend a few minutes to talk about uh, someone. He said uh, when he first started getting involved in academic senate work, he got some very pointed advice from someone, uh, something along the lines of, never trust anything you hear from anybody in the University of California Office of the President. <laughs> I'll let you guess uh, who was the source of that advice. Uh, let me close by saying that what you've heard about, Jules, uh, in many respects as a scholar, as an institution builder, and sometimes very impatient institution builder, as a participant and faculty, uh, shared governance at the University of California, all those things, there was a version of that at home, too, in many respects. <laughs> We'd often have uh, conversations over meals, and you could count on Jules to say something. Uh, uh, to us, particularly to Sophie, our daughter at times, that was outrageous. <laughs> Simply outrageous. And we would label him the provocateur. He loved to provoke. And then you kind of say, okay, Jules, you know, you know, we're the parents. That wouldn't stop him at all. He just kept right down that train uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, always kept things very, very uh, stimulated. Uh, so all those stories that you hear uh, of administration and faculty uh, governance and uh, building university hills or whatever it might be, uh, he carried home with him as well. Another thing that's very important about Jules is that he, uh, obviously he was had a very strong anti-authority streak in him. Uh, and one of my favorite stories about that was he told, I can't remember the details now, I don't remember what institution among the many that he had been at, but he managed to recruit a faculty member into a position that didn't exist. And he simply compelled the university to create the position because, after all, the guy's been recruited. Uh, uh, in this day and age in the University of California, I think it's a reasonable strategy. I think we all uh, apply that and, and see what happens. Uh, another important thing about Jules uh, going with this kind of anti-authority streak is he was also he was anti-convention. He was anti-company man. He was anti-anything that fit somebody's predefined notion of what was uh, the right way to do things or the proper way to do things. What he really liked, what he really enjoyed, what, what he really thrilled him was brilliance and genius and creativity and, and unconventionality. And uh, he would talk over and over again about the people he had met in his life who had a spark that the rest of us don't have. It was something really very special. And we saw that at home, too. Uh, and Sophie, I'm sorry to tell another story, but when she was, uh, when our daughter Sophie was in early elementary school years, she loved to play teacher. And Jules loved with Doris to be the students. And Sophie would conduct the whole class, give them homework and all kinds of things. Uh, but one of the things had to do with math. And Sophie, at that age, had developed her own methodology for solving math problems. 
Jules loved this. This was fabulous. Not some conventional cookie-cutter thing that's taught in a workbook created by bureaucrats somewhere. She had figured out how to do it on her own in her own way, and it was brilliance personified. And he just absolutely adored that. The other thing, the final thing I'll say about the things we've seen in his career also coming home was his sense of principle and commitment. Uh, Bernie alluded to this. Uh, I've never seen a relationship like the one between Jules and Doris. <laughs> Almost 70 years. And I never have I seen a more devoted husband to a wife through all kinds of challenges, physical challenges. Uh, Jules has just always been there. And when you would see the two of them together, when Doris would visit at the hospital or he would visit when she was in the hospital, whatever it might be, there was a connection that just can't be described in conventional language. And it was that kind of commitment and that kind of dedication. And I, I know it was true uh, with Jane growing up and the passage through life she had and Jules always being there. I know it was true with Carl, her brother, uh, having polio at an early age and the challenge of Zachary, but Jules was always there. And it is just this principled, devoted sense of absolute commitment <coughs> that would be uh, treated as not possible in Hollywood anymore, but it really goes to the core of the kind of uh, human being that Jules was. Thank you. So I want to thank you all for being here. Um, yeah, um, a, a dog with a bone. That's how <laughs> I think of my dad. He just gets his jaws onto it, and he just won't let it go. <laughs> and he does that with causes that he feels are important, and he, he does that with family and with friends. For my dad, friends were family. Blood was not the issue. It was the issue of commitment and, and devotion um, to the institution, to causes, and, and to people. Um, so I don't know much about economics, at all. I think that was the way as a uh, daughter <laughs> I could protect myself from this person who just let him let me be know that he was just a genius in this. Um, so I just shut down and it's just incredible how little I know about economics. Um, and so Mark was just blown away when I, you know, you don't know that? You don't know that? You don't know that? So I knew very little about my dad's academic uh, trajectory. I became an academic, um, but I knew very, very little. Um, so there's what I did know about my dad as an economist was that um, when he was at Stanford and we had a home on the Stanford campus, an Eichler a house, a, a famous architect, um, they sold it for not one penny more then they bought it because my dad did not believe in making profit over unearned 
labor or whatever. You know, okay, so not one penny more. And that is my dad. And I, for me, my dad is devotion to social justice, to the social good. I, I, that just got absorbed. That was how he lived in our family. Um, and the devotion that he had to my mom, Mark spoke to it, to, to myself, my brother, to his granddaughter, Sophie, to my mother's sister, to any, any friends in need, to, to friends who lost their, their spouses earlier. He just brought people into our family, and they just became family. Um, Mark also, there's a lot of similar things. He, he liked odd ducks. <laughs> you know, so he had a story that, you know, it's just sort of these family stories that one time he was lecturing, and this student came up on a big lecture hall, and this student came up on stage and started rifling through his notes while he was talking, and then started, you know, putting writing on the board. And my dad would tell us, he was brilliant. He was brilliant. And, and he said, nowadays people would label this kid Asperger's or autism. They would put him in a box, but this kid was brilliant. And that is kind of how we were raised, you know, to, to not look through what someone looked like or what they were wearing and, and their stature, but, but it was their ideas and, and their commitment to social good and their commitment to social good. And, and just I just have to mention this about the global peace and conflict. He was so proud of that. He was so passionate. Um, his, his, his connection with Larry Howard is just, I, I don't know where that happened in what universe, but their lives became so entangled at the end. And how Larry visited my dad every day of the last two months of his life. Um, so, and another just story is that, um, I was also, by the way, shocked when they moved to Irvine. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. Uh, <laughs> but it turned out all right. You know, I went, I, I went Orange County? I, Dad, everything you've taught me, I, I just don't get it. But you know, no, we're going to start it, and it's going to be a good university, and we're get, we're we're going to we're going to do it here, and good people, and it doesn't matter where it is. You know, again, he was like defending Orange County. I mean, what, what was going on? Um, I will remember about four years ago when he was in the hospital, and we thought we were going to lose him then. And, and this was a man who I just, you know, everyone goes, I can't believe he died because he was going to defy it. He was determined to live. He thought he could defy it. But about four years, and he was going to live for my mom. I mean, that was, that was it. But four years ago, he was in bed, and he had all the tubes hanging out of him and everything like that. And I just wish I had had this on film. And he said, um, I am glad I have lived this long. He said, and Obama had just been elected. And he said, this is one of the first times I have ever been proud of my country. 
And I just wished I had had that on video. I was going to send it to the Obama campaign. I mean, this man, you know, with all these tubes and everything. But that's, that, was, that was his life in context. That it meant that he had lived because he had seen Obama get elected. Um, so he, our, I, it has just come into, I mean, if I think of the memory of my dad, I, I just think of fighting for the, for the common good and for the social good. And um, we had a small family memorial. And, and by the way, so many of your names, I mean, he would talk about people all the time and, and what they were doing. Um, and so thank you for, for acknowledging him tonight. Uh, we had a small family memorial, and my brother is a singer, and um, my brother sat in his chair, and he was trying to think of what, he was trying to think of a song to sing for my dad, and he just started singing, and um, the words, I don't know if any of you know it, but it's, um, last night I had the strangest dream, and the words were, last night I had the strangest dream. I'd ever had before. I dreamed the world had all agreed to put an end to war. And that was my dad. He really, really wanted a war. Oh, he really, really wanted a war. He really, really, really wanted a world in which there wasn't war. Um, and that's just, I just can only tell you that uh, for all his uh, bluntness and feistiness and, and curmudgeonness and uh, just there was just gold inside and I think you all know that and that's why you're here and thank you very very much for being his colleagues and for coming out tonight and um, my mom told me she just couldn't come I think she was just overwhelmed by all the people, but she said she wanted me to tell her every minute of what went on. So she will get a report. So thank you very much. Uh, th thank you very much for coming, and please um, record your memories, uh, book. Uh, please feel free to stay, eat, um, and most importantly, celebrate the life of a remarkable man. Thank you. Thank you very much.